Kevin Pickett had been posting flyers around town trying to locate his missing stepson, Corey Kaufman. In his calendar, day after day, he wrote, No Corey. Now, weeks had gone by, and he was trying to explain to a Turlock detective that his stepson had never before been gone this long. Does he do any drugs? Yeah. Kaufman was a methamphetamine addict who roamed the town, scavenging for scrap metal. He used to get some of the wire down, up and down the mm -hmm. railroad track. Okay. Um, it doesn't matter what Corey was doing, That's what nice. Corey was about to do, or what Corey did in the past. It doesn't matter. Right. Okay? We want to find him. Right. That's, that's, that's our goal here. Now, I'm one of the possibility he could be brain hurt or something and don't know what the hell he's doing or where he's at. Okay. Corey Kaufman was a tenacious thief in his hometown here in California's Central Valley. Thieves made enemies. More than one had expressed a desire to do him harm. What do you think happened, Kevin? I believe he got in something and somebody hurt him over. You think so? Trapping or he broke in something he shouldn't have. I don't, I could not tell you. I really don't know. If I knew, I would already been checking. What are the rumors out there? You can tell me. Well, just the rumors are that he's been beaten to death. Pickett sensed that he was a suspect when the detective, Frank Navarro, returned to question him further. You guys think I had something to do with this? I really do. Well, I, th I, think, I, I think you know that something happened. Well, I'm, of course something happened. He's okay. not here. But you're not telling us the whole story. I'm telling you exactly what I know. I have nothing to do with my son. Okay. Offended by that. We don't mean to offend you. Well, I'm the one that called. I'm the one that, you know, I've had Corey ever since he's a year old. Okay. My kid. I don't have nothing to hide from you guys, man. Okay. I want to find my son, man. Okay. You know how many people we've been talking to? Oh, I can imagine. Okay. And you know the problem is, is that they're all drug users. You're doing the best you can, I understand. But that's the problem with this case. There would be many problems with the case. But the detective was hinting at the maddening murkiness at its heart. Corey Kaufman had moved in Stanislaus County's violent netherworld of dope fiends and dealers and thieves, hustlers and parolees and snitches, all scrabbling for survival and advantage. It was a cauldron of drug burns and long simmering grudges, desperate narcotic need, weaponized rumor and frequent betrayals. It was a busy den of what one cop called crankster talk, shreds of hearsay filtered through one unreliable vessel and then another, and then another. This shadowy milieu would furnish many of the witnesses in the murder case against defense attorney Frank Carson. From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Trials of Frank Carson. I'm Christopher Gofford. This is episode two, A Disappearance. Okay, my name is Kirk Bunch. I'm an investigator with Stanislaus County District Attorney's Office. Today's date is 428-2012. It's approximately 2115 hours in Turlock. 
making contact with a Michael Cooley uh, related to a missing um, person. Initially, police did not show extraordinary interest in the disappearance of 26-year-old Corey Corndog Kaufman. On April 2nd, when his stepfather went to police to report him missing, authorities dutifully logged it in. But the report was brief, noting that Kaufman was a known meth user. Another tweaker in the wind was not likely to quicken any cop's pulse. They disappeared and reappeared all the time. So why was a veteran investigator from the DA's office, Kirk Bunch, now taking a sharp interest in Corey Kaufman's fate? Bunch would be a central figure in the whole case. I tried to get him to talk to me, but he declined. Throughout this podcast, you'll hear recordings Bunch and other cops made of their interviews with witnesses. Corey was my best friend. I mean, uh, we would like steal copper and shit like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, right. Didn't make money in that. I know he went over in that backyard and I know they did something to him. Michael Cooley was in his 50s, a thief and addict and parolee. He'd been a veteran of the drug scene for decades longer than Corey Kaufman. He was six foot two and 220 pounds and went by the nickname Big Mike. I never had a friend in my life, and one night he was over here joking around. He goes, You know something, Mike? You're my best friend. Cooley had cycled in and out of the California prison system for decades on convictions for burglary, theft, and parole violations. According to police reports, he was a collector of knives and a user of black tar heroin a former member of the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang whose tattoos included the words White Pride, Wanted, and Ladies Love Outlaws. Now he was telling the DA investigator about the last time he saw Corey Kaufman, an account that would seize the authorities' interest. By Cooley's account, Kaufman had been at his house on Lander Avenue in Turlock late on Friday night, March 30th. They had a small beer party, and were tossing horseshoes in the dirt pit behind the house. Their gaze drifted to the big, junk-cluttered lot next door on 9th Street, on the other side of a chain-link fence. This was a graveyard of rusted old cars, an ancient double-decker bus, dilapidated tractor parts, a bathtub, a rusted wagon wheel emerging from the weeds like a Civil War battlefield photo. The DA's office took great interest in the lot's owner, Frank Carson, 57 years old, a well-known name in Stanislaus County's legal community and in its criminal underground. Among the junk and weeds on Carson's lot stood a long wooden warehouse crammed with dozens of antique cars and a series of big shipping containers teeming with vintage signs, rare books, and furniture. Carson thought of it as a kind of bank account and spoke of selling it all someday when he quit the law. He would tell his wife, this is our retirement. The lot and all its treasure sprawled alluringly beside the property of Big Mike Cooley. By Cooley's account, there was a new temptation on Carson's lot that Friday in late March, and one his young buddy Corey Kaufman had found irresistible. We looked over that fence back there, and there was like 15 irrigation pipe. Right. Uh, they're solid uh, uh, aluminum. Corey was going to come back that night, and we was going to go over there. Well, Corey showed up. We were sitting right there on that couch. 
we had a few drinks. He tapped me on the leg. He goes, hey, bro, I'm going to go around the corner. I'll be right back. And uh, we never came back. Whether these aluminum pipes ever existed would be hotly contested. Police would never produce any photographs of them. Carson would insist he had no such pipes on his property, that he had no use for them. The last thing in the world you'd ever want to use is a brittle aluminum pipe. That whole thing, I can just tell you, is just an absolute fabrication. Carson had been vexed for years about the repeated thefts and knew Big Mike Cooley and Cooley Circle had some responsibility for it. Carson had complained repeatedly to police. When the DA came knocking, Cooley claimed that Carson had threatened to kill him, and a neighbor said he overheard Carson threatening to bury Cooley where no one would find him. Cooley's relatives and hangers-on also claimed to hear Carson making threats. Carson denied this. Defense attorneys would portray these witnesses as part of a drug-fueled Cooley clan, or as people hoping for a break on criminal charges. Carson would acknowledge he did confront Cooley with the message that he'd send him to prison as a third-strike felon or stealing from him. I wanted to ask Big Mike Cooley himself about this, but he didn't get back to me. The way things are kind of piling up, you know, uh, it's starting to look pretty suspicious. We should probably switch our gears and investigate it as a possible homicide. This is Investigator Bunch talking to Cooley. The DA investigator finds it necessary to reassure Cooley about his own motives in case Cooley might harbor any doubts. My thing is on this, it's not because it's Frank Carson. Okay, but yeah. it's because of Corey. You know, I'm going to try to piece it together and see what happened, try to you know put the puzzle together. In a report, Bunch laid out the official rationale for what would soon mushroom into a massive investigation, including the DA's office, the Stanislaus County Sheriff's Office, the Turlock Police Department, the Modesto Police Department, the Department of Corrections, and the State Department of Justice. In the report, Bunch wrote, quote, F. Carson is a well-known criminal defense attorney. The possibility exists that F. Carson may be involved with the disappearance of K. Kaufman. Bunch called for a, quote, thorough and objective investigation and added, quote, because of F. Carson's current standing as a defense attorney, it is important if the evidence suggests he is not involved to exclude him as early as possible so that F. Carson's current caseload remains unaffected. In his report, Bunch does not suggest the possibility that someone besides himself might be better suited for this assignment. He leaves unmentioned that he has been a special target of Carson's wrath for years. Seven years earlier, Carson had successfully represented the former Modesto mayor on corruption charges, an investigation Bunch had led. And he, he always resented that he didn't get a conviction. And I always resented that he lied and did all sorts of stuff. Carson had attacked Bunch in blisteringly personal terms. Carson had accused Bunch of perjury, of misrepresenting his employment history, of trying to intimidate him. In 2010, Carson even memorialized his contempt for the DA investigator in a written court declaration, which he offered to other defense attorneys for use in cases involving Bunch. Carson wrote, quote, 
Among local attorneys familiar with his work, he is reviled as dishonest and unprofessional. What I was going at was that he had committed fraud in becoming a district attorney investigator. The DA would maintain that the animosity went in just one direction, from Carson to Bunch. Asked in court about Carson's relentless attacks on his work and character, Bunch would call them baseless, and he would insist they had not affected his clear-eyed, unbiased judgment as an investigator. Bunch and the other investigators were soon knee-deep in street rumors about Kaufman's disappearance, a wash in tales of feuds and rip-offs going back years. One guy had given Kaufman a horse trailer to scrap and complained that Kaufman had cheated him out of his share. Then the story went, tried to run Kaufman down with a Pontiac. There was a story about some armed drug dealers whose pot plants Kaufman had pilfered and sold himself. There was a story about Kaufman ripping off some power tools from a billiards place on East Avenue with connections to the Hells Angels. At one point, detectives came to believe that Big Mike Cooley knew more than he was telling. They came back to interrogate him. Mike, you know what happened. You know who... No, I don't know what happened to him. Okay. No, I don't know what happened to him. He left my fucking house, and that was the last time I seen him. I love that fucking kid to death right there, dude. Don't tell me that I know what fucking happened to him, because I don't. If I did, if I knew that was the ones that did it, I would tell you that was the ones that did it. Mike, we're not saying that you had anything to do with Corey's death. I mean, I think of that fucking kid every day, okay. every day. Okay. Were you there when Corey was killed? No, sir, I wasn't. I put that on my mom's grave. Okay. I was not there. Were you, were you there when he was taken away? No, sir, I wasn't. If I was there when that kid was beat up, they would have had to kill me, too, because I love that kid that much. I know you love him. Okay. I, if I knew who killed him, I was not near him or with okay. him when he got hurt. Okay. Everybody said he got hurt in my property. I was not with him. I did not go with him that night. I, it, he was supposed to got beat up in my backyard, got taken away. Then we was over there at Frank Carson's place. He got shot. I wish that one had never found that place over there because it caused so much fucking trouble and I lost my best friend that I ever had. Mm -hmm. If I could go back, I would change it all. Mm -hmm. When that kid left my house, he was wanting to go back there, and I told him not to go back there because we found some, we seen some people back there. I wasn't with him when he got hurt. I wasn't with him when he got taken. I wasn't nowhere around. Detectives would insist they diligently examine the myriad theories of how Corey Kaufman disappeared. The feud over the horse trailer, the stolen marijuana, the Hells Angels connection. These were dead ends, they would decide. Defense lawyers would question whether detectives looked hard enough or in the right places, or whether they had already fallen victim to a tunnel vision obsession with Frank Carson. Robert Jacquish was one of the many local thieves who knew about the treasure trove of antiques and junk on Carson's lot. He told investigators He'd once sneaked into the car barn and had to hide when a man he couldn't identify came in to catch him. He never saw a gun, but he thought the guy had one. He managed to pry open a hole in the barn wall and climb out. He sent a man he thought was Frank Carson 
grabbed his arm, but he broke free and ran. Jaquish suspected that Kaufman had been killed on Carson's lot. To set an example to other thieves, he told police. This was the essence of the theory crystallizing among investigators. Maybe Corey Kaufman had sneaked onto Carson's 9th Street lot and been unable to escape. Maybe Carson, frustrated to the point of homicidal rage with the endless thefts, had had someone waiting for the thief. Would Carson have performed vigilante justice himself or relied on someone else? Who would Carson have enlisted for the bloody chore? For this, investigators focused on the Pop and Cork liquor store, a few blocks away from Carson's lot. It was run by Baljeet, Bobby Atwal, and his brother Daljeet, or D. Hey, buddy. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Good, brother. The Pop and Cork had been a fixture in the neighborhood for decades, and the brothers were well known. Hello, boss. They were conspicuously muscular weightlifters who frequented the local gym. As young men in India, they had played competitive kabaddi, a rough contact sport with elements of wrestling, rugby, and tag. Good, hurry up! The brothers sponsored local sports teams and went to customers' weddings. Many of their longtime regulars worked at the local dairy and almond farms and the Foster Farms turkey processing plant down the road. People came in for chew or coffee, booze or lotto tickets, and lingered for the conversation. Anybody live in Turlak, they all come to Papangok. This is Bobby Atwal. For years, he would open the store at 6 a.m. It was easy to put in an 80-hour work week. I'm happy to come here and see my all the old customers, talk to them over 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Feel like I'm home. This is my village. Turlak City is like my village. It's just like I know everybody. It just feel like feel so safe, like you're safe here. People are friendly, and the high school coaches, a lot of police officers, large regular customers. People come here, sometimes they know that they don't have a wallet. They left their wallet home, they have no money, and they don't worry about, oh, guys, I'll be back in 30 minutes, I'll be back tomorrow or next week. And so many people have a tab here. Customers were used to the sight of the pop and cork handyman, Robert Woody stocking shelves and chatting up customers in the parking lot. His presence made some people uneasy. He had a rough way of speaking inflected with the streets. He'd been on and off drugs for years, and he was grateful to the brothers for the stability the job afforded. So what was the Pop and Cork's connection to Frank Carson? Carson had represented Bobby Atwal on some minor charges years back. And right around the time of Kaufman's disappearance, he'd represented Robert Woody on a stolen property charge that he got dismissed. One day, both Atwal and Woody were at Carson's office, and the lawyer asked the men for a favor. Would they keep an eye on his frequently pillaged property down the block from the Poppincork? This request happened nearly two months after Kaufman disappeared, but it was a mistake that would come to haunt Carson. Big Mike Cooley, the ex-con with the Ladies Love Outlaws tattoo, was one of the men Carson suspected of stealing from him. And Carson's suspicion was correct. Cooley and his associates would climb through a hole in Carson's fence 
and carry away everything from signs to furniture, as Cooley would admit later in trial. Cooley told police that Bobby Atwal and Robert Woody had confronted him in front of his home, and so police now speculated that the Pop and Cork crew had been patrolling Carson's property as, quote, centurions and had served as Carson's muscle the night Corey Kaufman vanished. By late June 2012, detectives got a warrant to listen to Carson's private conversations. Many of them concerned his 87-year-old father, Phallus Tex Carson, who was in the final stages of cancer. When his father died, they listened as Carson and his mother, Valley made plans to run the obituary. So if that's okay, it'll come out tomorrow? I think it'll be real nice. What investigators were not hearing, however, was Carson admitting to any role in the disappearance of Corey Kaufman. Among police who use electronic surveillance, there is a common technique called the tickle. This is meant to nudge suspects into unguarded talk, making them panicked enough or angry enough to get on the phone and say reckless things. Sometimes a raid will provoke this response, and sometimes a face-to-face visit from police is enough. Okay, today is uh, July 12, 2012. It's about 11.26. Myself and uh, Deputy Kenny Berenger from the Sheriff's Office will be uh, walking to Frank Carson's office and interview him regarding this case. Carson's one-story law office in downtown Modesto was a working lawyer's office, gritty and shop-worn and functional in feel. A longtime sole practitioner, the thrifty son of Depression-born Texans, Carson had furnished it an eccentric swap-meet bric-a-brac, a vintage model train, an antique service bell on the secretary's desk, an old ranch sign offering a reward for chicken thieves. The hallway was lined with law books and a row of mismatched shelves, some of which had come with the building when he bought it. The law books were not merely decorative, Carson, an old-school attorney, actually consulted them rather than rely on LexisNexis. Carson was mulishly low-tech. He wrote his legal motions in pencil for his secretary to type. He had an email address but never used it. He owned a flip phone but never texted. Carson had reason to be wary when detectives Frank Navarro and Ken Berenger entered his office. He knew detectives had been conducting interviews around town, asking about him. He had prior experience with Navarro and despised him. But Carson came out to greet the detectives cordially and led them down the hall to a conference room. There, he did what he would have advised any client to do, which is to offer nothing they might use against him. The conversation curdled fast. I'd just like to talk to you about things we're working with. Well, here's my idea. I'm kind of excited up. you have any questions, just put them in writing. Mail them here, and I'll look out. You know what kind of questions, or what kind of any questions? Okay. It's it's a missing persons case, and whatever it is, whatever it is, because I'm in the middle of a murder trial. Oh, are you? My father died. Oh, I'm sorry. His funeral was Saturday. He interred in Monday. I'm still dealing with that. Carson was a career student of police techniques. And it's hard to imagine any detective would reasonably believe he'd throw open his doors and submit to their questioning. Still, Navarro persisted. One of the main reasons 
business, Frank, uh, that I came here is because we spoke, we, during the investigation, we spoke to uh, Baljeet and uh, Dalweet Dal Adwa, the, the owners of Popping Corp, That's and funny. they brought up your name. That you, gave up, that you gave them some orders of uh, taking care of some problems that you had over on uh, your property on 9th Street. If you had a question, put it in writing. Okay, so you don't want to talk to us about it? No, I've told you to put it in writing. Right, but I'm asking if you want no, to talk to us or not. Tell, you tell me, you put it in writing, whatever the questions are. I've tried to be civil to you. I understand that, Frank. I'm in the middle of a bunch of other stuff. And I'm in the middle of our... Do whatever you're going to do. Do whatever you're going to do. That's all. We need your help. We just need your help, Mr. Carson. We got three. Put, in, put anything in writing you want. Put it in writing. I'll work it. All right. Okay. You're not involved in this, are you, Frank? Put it in writing. Whatever your problem is, and don't talk to me. You just acted really weird, Frank. Here, I'm. Put it in writing. Are you okay? No, I buried my father Monday. Okay. You're not interested in whether I'm okay. Put it in writing and go. Okay. You think you'll be able to help us out? Put it in writing. Okay. Right. By my count, Carson tells them 17 times to put their questions in writing before they leave his office. His behavior was, quote, very unusual and unreasonable, according to one investigator's report. But if you're a defense attorney, you are following an ingrained professional reflex as basic as a prizefighter's instinct to cover his face. Not cooperating with authorities in such a context is high on the list of first principles. For decades, you have harangued hapless clients, guilty and innocent and everything in between, about the foolishness of having talked to the reasonable men with badges at your door. If investigators were hoping by their visit to stimulate a confession from Carson on their wiretap, they were disappointed. That day, July 12th of 2012, they listened secretly as he spoke wearily to his older brother, Terry. Again, Carson was talking not of Corey Kaufman, but of his dead father. Well, I'm going to drive out to the cemetery today, and I want to see how things look out there. But it's just, uh, anyway, it's just one more thing I got to deal with. Investigators waited another three days until Carson was out of town to raid his properties. They used bolt cutters to sever the locks from his big trailers and storage containers. They used a battering ram to get through the front door of the house where his stepdaughter lived beside the junk-filled lot. They were looking for anything to connect him to the disappearance of Corey Kaufman. It's Deputy Ken Berenger, Stanislaus County Sheriff's Department. Uh, we're going to be with uh, DOJ at this time. It's going to be uh, several members of DOJ assisting in a search of the residence, a search warrant. Um, the residence is owned by Frank Carson. Uh, we're going to uh, attempt to uh, set up a search of the property with uh, cadaver dogs. There was no sign of a struggle that had killed Corey Kaufman. No physical evidence that he'd ever been there. Nor did they find Kaufman's remains when they raided another Carson property on West Main Street. Instead, they encountered his mother, Valley, who promptly called her son to let him know. Here's what police recorded on their wiretap. Oh, this is Frank. Frank, this is your mother. And uh, we're over here at West Main, and there's a whole bunch of the sheriff's guys here. 
wanting to search this property, and we told them they would have to talk to you. They want to search the property. Look, Mama, we don't have anything to hide. Okay. We don't have a thing to worry about. I can tell you that, Mama. But I know that, but too. Right. Whenever we get time, I'll tell you more, but don't you worry. Yes, okay. They talked again a little later, and Carson seemed to strongly suspect that he was being listened to, and that police timed the raid so that he would be out of town. They just left, and they did have a search warrant, and they brought, they had the dog, and they then they took the dog back there, and then he knocked on the door and said they did not find anything. And I knew they wouldn't find anything because, you know, we would have seen where something had been moved or something. I don't know what they think, uh, but but I haven't buried anybody. or I assume that's what they think or, you know, but that's just stupid. The day after the raid, Carson called his wife, Georgia, who'd been out of town with her daughter, Christina. He warned her the house would be wrecked when they returned. Let me bring you up to speed. The cops have come commencing yesterday and with dog, you know, I guess body sniffing dogs and they, they searched West Main because uh, we've worked over there and then they went over to 9th Street. So I guess the front door is broken, the back door may be broken. Did they find any bodies? No. Hell no. There okay. isn't any. Are they done with us then? Or? No, I don't think we're, they're done with us by a long shot. The investigation dragged into August with no arrests, no trace of Corey Kaufman's body, and no good leads as to where it might be. About 6 p.m. on August 9th, an officer stopped by Frank Carson's office and dropped off a letter with 58 questions. They asked if he would take a polygraph test. They asked if he reported all the thefts on his Turlock property and if he'd made any threats to suspected thieves. They asked if he had an alibi for the night Kaufman disappeared. They must have suspected Carson was unlikely to give them answers, and their concluding question seemed designed less to gather facts than to provoke an incriminating response. What did he think should happen to those responsible for Corey Kaufman's disappearance? That day, three detectives, Bunch, Navarro, and a Modesto cop named John Evers, visited his law office. Bunch and Navarro he had long hated. Anyone who knew Carson even a little might grasp the extreme unlikelihood he would talk to them especially after his properties had been raided. So it's worth asking why, in the recording you're about to hear, the detectives ignored his dozens of unambiguous demands to leave. Hey, Frank. Mr. Carson, how you doing? Get out. I'm Detective Evers. Are you here to, are you here, do you have a warrant for my arrest or anything? No, 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 I don't. No, I don't. Get out. Um, Get out. This is open to the public. Get out. We're here. Hey, Georgia. Come here. We're here to talk to you about this. Get out. Get out. What's wrong with you? Get out. Calm down. 
Right. You're ordered off the property. You should hey, calm down. Well, we're also investigating. Get out. At the consumer. Get out. You're a person of interest. Get out. You need to Get out. Get out. Get out. Having ignored Carson's many demands that he leave, Bunch now said, Don't be aggressive, Mr. Carson. At this point, Carson did something of outsized brazenness. He called an emergency dispatcher and tried to perform a citizen's arrest on the cops. 911? I, I need help here at 911. What's wrong there? These people won't leave. Get out! Hey, what people, sir? Get out! Well, we did try calling. She didn't answer the phone. They didn't return our call. These guys are armed. Okay, who are They're armed. He's in my business. Oh. Uh, Get out! We really like to find Corey's body. Get out! What you're hearing here is two conversations. We didn't do anything. Carson on the phone with an emergency dispatcher and his wife, Georgia, fielding questions from detectives. But we have some information that... It's false. You get in dirtbag information. You believe all those heroin addicts. That's fine. She tells the cops that they're getting dirtbag information from heroin addicts. But we have specific information that Corey was over on the party night. And we just have some questions. You know we live in Modesto. Pardon me? We live in Modesto. Yeah, this is the apartment that's on 9th Street. They were now about two minutes into the confrontation, and by my count, Carson had already used the words, get out, 28 times. He kept urging the 911 dispatcher to send someone, even as detectives continued to question his wife. Later, Prosecutor Marlisa Ferreira would argue that Carson's 911 call was an attempt to thwart the police investigation and showed his, quote, consciousness of guilt. The prosecutor would argue, quote, the very first thing out of his mouth when the officers come in is, do you have an arrest warrant? Who asks that? Most people would say, can I help you? Carson would call this claim absurd, an attempt to characterize as criminal his exercise of basic constitutional rights. He's got the gun. He's got the gun. I see the gun. Frank, just calm, Get out. calm down, Frank. He's got a gun. Gosh. I see that it's on his right-hand side. He's got a black holster. You know, Georgia, this thing's going to be all bad. I'm ready. If you are inclined to sympathize with Frank Carson, what you may hear in this exchange is detectives harassing an innocent man in his place of business after hours, hoping not for information, but to needle him until he loses his temper and does something stupid. If you take this view, you may have bristled to hear the cops remark that Carson's office is open to the public, as if they were standing in a park or on a sidewalk, rather than on his property, uninvited, with no warrant. When investigator Kirk Bunch used the words, it's gonna be all bad to Carson's wife, Carson's anger intensified. Wait a minute, he just threatened, he just threatened my wife. It's all gonna be bad. But, wait a minute. He's not Bunch, Bunch has just threatened my wife saying it's all gonna be bad. Are you being aggressive? Get out. This isn't going to go away. Get out. Now he says, now you're being aggressive. Uh, Now, if they advance towards me, you need to get a police officer in here. Because if they won't leave, I'm going to place them both under arrest. In fact, I've already done it. I don't know why this person is being so Pardon? No. 
Have them leave. But I don't have to be armed. I can place them under arrest. About four and a half minutes into the encounter, the cops were ready to leave. Close the door. You're not Get gonna, out. You're not going to answer him. Get out. You're not gonna, Get out. You're not you help. shut up. You're not gonna help get out. Me. You're not gonna help get out. Me. You don't talk to me. I can talk get to out. You. No, you don't. I'm doing a get out. Frank, you're can, under, I ta- can I tell you, know you why what? we're here, you're Frank? You're both under arrest for, for trespassing. Frank, Frank, can well, I tell you I'm why we're here? place you both under arrest. Get out so we can lock the door. Can I tell you something real quick? Get out. No. I don't want to hear anything. Oh, I'm tired of your abuse and your threats. All right, Mr. Carson, it's not going to go no, away. You're, you're going to take. It's not going to go away. Close the door. Him. It's not going to work. Let go of my door. It's not going to work this time, Mr. Carson. You're under investigation. We'd like to talk to you. By the time Carson succeeded in getting police off his property, six and a half minutes after they walked in, he had used the words get out 50 times. The year 2012 ended with no sign of Corey Kaufman and no arrests. On missing posters around town, he was still smiling at passersby with a pair of straight white teeth. The next summer, deep in the mountains 70 miles away in Mariposa County, hunters found a human skull at the base of a tree near a dry creek bed. There were other bones nearby among thick leaves and pine needles a femur, a pelvis, tibias, fibulas, a scapula. In a hollowed out tree, a rib bone, three vertebrae, a clavicle. There was a battered zip up sweat jacket, a pair of Wrangler jeans, a ring of keys, a gray t-shirt that said, loose cannon, work boots, a headlamp. A Mariposa detective studied the skull and observed that it had good-looking teeth. She thought it might be the young man from Turlock. Trials of Frank Carson is written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford, for the Los Angeles Times. Our producers are Lori Galaretta and Sabrina Fang. Alex McGinnis is our composer and sound designer. Misha Stanton is our mix engineer. Our editor is Steve Clow. Our executive producers are Ben Adair at Western Sound and Abby Fentress Swanson at the LA Times. Special thanks to Shelby Grad, Julia Turner, and Kimmy Yoshino. If you like what you're hearing, Become a Los Angeles Times subscriber. You'll get special bonus episodes of this podcast. Hi, it's your host, Christopher Gofford again. Here's a reminder that LA Times subscriber support makes podcasts like this one possible. Subscribe now to get exclusive bonus episodes that will give you the story behind this show. We will share interviews with experts who will weigh in on the case, and we will play extra tape that sheds light on important parts of our story. Subscribe today to listen. Go to latimes.com forward slash exclusive dash podcasts. Thanks.